This podcast is a presentation of Indianola First Assembly of God Church. For more information, please visit us online at indianolafirst.com. Man, sometimes you just sing those songs and you just get goosebumps the whole time you sing them. You know what I mean? Hallelujah. What a truth that death was arrested (laughs) on our behalf. Praise God. Well, we've been in a series as of late, uh, starting last week, this is how we fight our battles, and it's a, it's a, it's a series on spiritual warfare. Uh, last week, um, I really only wanted you to come away with a couple things from the message. And first of all, uh, there is a spiritual realm. That was number one I wanted you to come away with. There is a spiritual realm, and uh, there are demons, and there are uh, there is an enemy that wants to destroy us, that wants to hurt us, that does things to bring fear. Uh, and secondly, that we don't have to be fearful of those demons that operate within it. We don't have to fear the enemy because the battle, as Pastor Jared just said, has already been won. It's already been won. And our, our, our battle here, the battles that we experience and that we go through here on this earth, they're not about trying to gain the victory because we've already been given the victory. They're really about keeping our spiritual foot on the, animal's, on the enemy's proverbial throat is really what it's about. And not letting him cause havoc with his antics and his lies. And we must always remember that Ephesians 6.12 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is where our battle lies. One of the reasons that we need not fear the demonic and the attacks that that, uh, Satan can throw at us is that we have Jesus Christ living on the inside of us. And that's an awesome thing to think about, isn't it? He lives on the inside of us. Satan's army of evil with all of its chief demons and subservient demonic entities actually fear, they fear Jesus. They are scared of him. They know that they are, have to be submissive to him and they don't have a choice. They've already been defeated. They absolutely know that their future has been written and there is nothing they can do about it. Another reason that we don't need to fear the enemy, and I didn't even get into this last week, but within this spiritual realm, we have angels that are always working on our behalf. Angels. And we don't talk about angels a lot. There's a lot of misconceptions about angels, and this message is not going to be all on angels, but I just wanted to touch on it just for a little bit because these are magnificent creations of God that were created uh, uh, and, and given free will, and they are there for us in our times of need. They absolutely are. They're real. The word angel is translated from the Hebrew word malak, in the Old Testament, and the Greek word angelos, or angelos, however you want to say it, in the New Testament. Malak is used 214 times, and angelos is used 186 times in the New Testament. That means that the word angel, sometimes translated messenger or ambassador, is found in the Scriptures over 400 times. Uh, the reason I tell you that is because I think that means angels are real. 400 times in Scriptures, I, I would think that that means they're real. One time they'd be real, right? But 400? These are active beings. So what are angels? They are God's heavenly messengers or servants, ambassadors. They are his holy dispatched 
ambassadors. They are not the people who have died and gone to heaven and have earned their wings. Did you hear what I said? Angels aren't people that die and then go to heaven and then somehow, some way, they earn their wings and then they become angels. That's not what angels are. Angels are created differently than we are. It's important to know. If you hear a bell ring, it doesn't mean that angel got its wings. Okay? That's Hollywood. That's not Bible. But it's amazing how many people in the church believe what Hollywood says. Should have a little bell right now, shouldn't I? Just ding. That's not how it is. They have been created separately and differently than us. And just so you know, there are more angels than we could even count. And just knowing that there are billions upon trillions of angels that can be dispatched in a moment to assist God's ultimate creation, by the way, his ultimate creation is you and I, that should alleviate at least some of our fears when it comes to spiritual warfare and the workings of the enemy. The Bible says, I didn't put the scripture on the screen, it says that when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God raises up a standard against it. Right? Change the punctuation there for just a second. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of God comes in and raises up a standard against it. I like that way better. Maybe they got the punctuation wrong. That was added later, right? But just knowing that there are billions upon trillions of angels that could be dispatched in a second to help us takes away fear. I want to talk about the core of this whole spiritual warfare, this whole war that, how did it all start? And well, we, we know that angels were created by God and they were created with free will. And this means that they were not created in a way that forced them to serve God. He didn't create us that way either. He created us with a free will. We don't have, we don't, we are not forced to serve God. There's a choice in the matter. Angels obviously had a choice in the matter as well. And God created angels before the earth was formed and before humans were made in God's image. We can get some insight from the book of Job. Uh, these, are these are the recorded words of God that, that he spoke to Job when Job was arguing with his friends and, and all this was going on. In Job 38, 4 through 7, God says to Job, Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out its surveying line? What supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone? And then he says this, and this is where we get the insight to angels. It says in verse 7, As the morning stars, that's the angels, sang together and all the angels shouted for joy. They were cheering and shouting as God laid the foundations of the earth. We can't pinpoint the exact timeline, but at some point, Satan welled up with pride over his own beauty and his own heavenly position. He was cast out of heaven along with a third of the angels that joined him. And we know that from Ezekiel 28, 12 through 17. Let's look at that real quick. You were the signet of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering. Sardis, topaz, and diamond, beryl, onyx, and jasper, sapphire, emerald, and 
carbuncle and crafted in gold were your settings and your engravings. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were an anointed guardian cherub. I placed you where you were on the holy mountain of God in the midst of the stones of fire you walked. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created till unrighteousness was found in you. In the abundance of your trade, you were filled with violence in your midst and, your, and you sinned. So I cast you uh, as a profane thing from the mountain of God and destroyed you. O guardian cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. And many Bible scholars believe that this is not only a prophecy given to Ezekiel against the king of, of Tyre, but a biblical description of the fall of Lucifer, who became Satan. God creates man in his own image and likeness, and God even creates mankind in a way that one day, if they choose Christ, they themselves will stand in judgment over the angels. So, so why am I going all over all this? Because I want you to understand, again, the, the beginning of this battle that we find ourselves in. The why, the why to why we have to put our foot on that devil and keep it on that devil's throat. This disgusting creature, Satan, who was cast out of heaven, who had a choice to serve God, and who was created so beautifully, so magnificently, that he welled up with pride, God cast him out. He became this creature. I want you to know he has hate for you, and that hate is so great. You can't even fathom how much he hates you. You are the object of God's love, and he, by his own doing and his own choice, rebelled against the God who created him so magnificently and will one day be the object of God's wrath. Satan is the eternal enemy of God. He despises God, and he hates everything that looks like or reminds him of God. You were created in God's likeness. You were created in his image, and he hates you for that. You're the object of God's love. He can't stand you because of that. His future, along with the futures of all of his demon underlings, has been written. They will all be cast into the lake of fire where they will, su they will suffer forever. So the only thing Satan can do until the appointed time is lash out and take as much of God's creation down with him as he can. This is his only desire, to hurt the perfectly pure heart of God. Because God created man, and now Satan, as he trips up, lies, steals, and destroys, and turns man from God keeps them in rebellion, keeps them away from the love of God, he can glory in that for a short time because he's doing damage. But there is coming a day. There's coming a day, amen? God's already won the, won the victory. Death's been arrested. It, everything that needs to be done has been done through the cross, right? And one day he's gonna come back and it's, the, the judgment's gonna fall and he's gonna be thrown in to the lake of fire. We know that. And his followers and his demon underlings. But if he can get and trip up you or your son or your daughter or your grandchild or your neighbor or your friend or your relative or whoever he can, he's going to do everything he can to do that. 
That is the war. That is the spiritual battle that we are in. If he can't beat God, which he can't, then he'll attempt to steal, kill, and destroy everything and everyone God has created. This is the war, folks. And this is the reason we have spiritual battles to fight to this day. The devil strategizes with his demon cohorts at how to wipe us out spiritually. Can you imagine? How many have ever sat in a boardroom? Wow. You're either not voting or you've never been in a boardroom. How many have ever been in a meeting where there's been people around a table? How many hate voting? You just voted, so <laughs> gotcha. Can you imagine Satan and his demon cohorts sitting around, maybe a table, planning, strategizing, and how he's going to take you out? I believe that's the picture we get. They want to wipe us out spiritually, whether abruptly or slowly over time, little by little. Each deceptive plan is carefully weighed and it's measured in reference to each person. Their plan, their manipulations, and, 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 and they, they tailor fit their schemes, okay, to each person. They want to capitalize on your weakness. And one of the best examples in Scripture of Satan scheming to destroy is the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. This event is recorded in Matthew chapter 4. It's recorded in Luke chapter 4 as well as Mark chapter 1. And, and I want you to understand that when Jesus, when this occurs, Jesus was, was baptized by John the Baptist and uh, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove and God the Father speaks over him in an audible voice and he says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. It's a beautiful picture of the Trinity all in one little section of scripture, all right there. You had the Father, you had the Son, and you had the Holy Spirit all right there. And it was the beginning of Jesus' ministry. When I was thinking about the scripture, I thought of our, our logo emblem thing up here because that, I don't know if you realize this, but that's a picture of the Trinity. You have the Father, which is the eternal circle, and you have the sun, which is the cross, and you have the Holy Spirit, which is the flaming dove coming down. That's, did you know what that was? So you're like, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's what that is. It's a picture of the Trinity, and this is a great picture of the Trinity. But I want to pick it up, Matthew 4, 1 through 4, because right after this baptism happened, Jesus, and this is what it says, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. I can relate with that. If you didn't eat for 40 days and 40 nights, you could probably relate with that too. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Notice that it is the Holy Spirit that leads Christ into the wilderness where Jesus is tempted by Satan. I need to say something to you this morning. We don't have to live in fear of the enemy. I've already said that, but I'm saying it again. We don't have to live in fear of the enemy. You don't have to live in fear of the enemy. I mean, anybody awake this morning? You don't have to live in fear of the enemy. 
We don't have to be fearful of Satan by any means at all, but we must have a healthy respect for him and the fact that he is skillful in what he does. His strategies and his attacks are not one in the same. And I want you to hear this part, because this kind of lays some groundwork for what I'm going to teach you today. His strategies and attacks are not necessarily one and the same. Yes, in the master plan, it's all an attack. It's all a scheme, right? It's all a strategy. But strategies and attacks, they work in tandem. They work side by side. Satan strategically works at rendering us powerless, then his attacks are more effective. When we're powerless, his attacks have less effect. Are you powerless this morning? Okay. Here we see Satan waiting 40 days and 40 nights into Jesus fasting. So Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days, 40 nights. He's hungry. And you know, Satan's just there waiting, 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 waiting. Ah, he's hungry. He waited until Jesus was physically weakened by his long time of fasting. And then, the Bible says, Jesus was hungry and the tempter came. Strategy number one. You can write this down. Satan will appeal to the lust of the flesh. It's a strategy he has. He will appeal to the lust of our flesh. I don't know if you've noticed, but uh, this body, not just mine, but yours too, our bodies, they have urges. They have desires. This body, everybody tap your body. Not your wife's, Corey, tap your own. <laughs> this body, it wants, it wants what it wants. And if the truth be told, our flesh is gluttonous and not just in wanting food. It wants what it wants and it always wants more. It's never satisfied. Lust can be defined as an over-desire. So, Lust of the flesh is an over-desire of the flesh to fulfill its urges and desires. It's an over-desire to fulfill what this body wants, what our flesh wants. In Jesus' case, the natural bodily urge to eat when he was hungry. That's what we're talking about. That's, that's how it took place. But this satisfying the flesh can be played out in a number of ways. Addictions of any kind. Addictions that we cannot seem to control and they become out of control as our flesh demands we partake. I mean, we don't like talking about addictions all the time with ourselves, but honestly, has anyone ever been addicted to anything in here? I mean, maybe, maybe cigarettes, maybe, maybe drugs, maybe alcohol, maybe those nutty bars from uh, Little Debbie. <laughs> I mean, addictions come in all... Shapes and sizes, don't they? I love those things. I'm glad they put two in a package because I couldn't just eat one, then I'd have to eat two. But they're both in one package so you can say I'm only having one, right? 
And when you have two, then you're like, you're really having four. Come on. Our flesh always wants more. And whether it be substances we put into our bodies, sexual addictions, habits, it doesn't matter, that are harmful to us. I mean, it, 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 it wants what it wants. And I'm not here to get legalistic this morning, so I will, I will, I'll refrain from naming all the things that fall under the lust of the flesh. You know what they are for you. You know those things that you engage in that are basically useless except for appeasing the flesh. And this is Satan's plan. If I can get them so focused on themselves and meeting the needs of their own flesh, I can distract them from focusing on God or on others. I can distract them from focusing on the spiritual battle at hand. When you're tied up over here and you're so bound by the lust of the flesh, the battle is over before it ever starts. And I'm afraid that much of the church today is caught up and bound up and tied up and tangled up in the lusts of the flesh. Church, these things start, they, they start off slow. And in some cases, even innocently in our lives. Then they take root and they grow and they eventually start overtaking more and more and more. And Satan loves to tempt our, tempt our flesh and the, and the particular lust that we have as individuals. I may not be weak in the same area as you. And you may not be weak in the same area as me. And so what happens is we, he gets the church fighting even over these things, doesn't he? Because I don't, I'm not weak in this area. I set up this big rule that says, well, if you fall into that, then you're just, you're just, you're really an immature Christian because it's no problem for me to overcome that. I'll give you a for instance. It's not a really hard thing for me to not cuss. I've always was taught not to cuss. Even when I wasn't saved, I didn't cuss a lot. I just thought it sounded stupid. Some people really struggle with that. Now, what if my mind, I say, well, those people are very immature because it's no problem for me. I don't know why it's a problem for them. That starts legalism, doesn't it? And then the church gets divided. Then the church starts fighting. What's what? What's what? No. Lust of the flesh is lust of the flesh, whatever it might be. They start slow, and it just, sometimes not, but they eventually overtake. Satan Taylor fits his warfare just for you. He capitalizes on your weakness and masterfully and deceitfully attempts to lure your flesh away from God and all that God has for you. And that's the, the spiritual battle we must be constantly aware of. And we have to engage in fighting that battle right away. If we don't allow the lust of the flesh to grow and just to become stronger and stronger within us, then when the attacks of Satan come, they won't wipe us out as quickly. They won't wipe us out at all. They won't be able to do what he wants them to do. You know, there was a, a time when, when I was young, I started babysitting, it's 
kind of weird for a guy to babysit, isn't it? But I did. I just wanted to make money when I was a kid. So I started babysitting when I was 12. I babysat some of the neighbor's kids. I babysat some family friends. I babysat some uh, relatives' kids, that kind of thing. I just I tried to get babysitting jobs because that was a good way to make money at night, and I could do my homework and put the kids to bed and blah, 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 right? Well, there was this one place that I went babysitting, and... Uh, the, uh, the, one of the, there were several kids there, and one of the young ladies brought to me from her, uh, I think I was 13 or 14, but brought to me from her uh, uh, parents' uh, room, or, or I don't know where she got it, but um, a pornographic magazine. And she opened it up and she said, do you like looking at this? Um, 13, 14-year-old kid right? What does a 14-year-old kid raging hormones do? He probably looks. Now, I'd never seen anything like that. Don't ever want to see anything like that again because it was disgusting. And I had to put it away and get her to put it away. And where I put it away from where she found it, there were stacks. That's Satan luring you in luring you in, laying traps for you however he can, luring you in and away from God. At that time in my life, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know who I was going to be. I didn't, I didn't know anything. I just knew that there's a lot of things going on in my body, and I didn't understand it all. Laying traps early in life. And if I would have bid on all that, and I'm not going to say that I didn't see it, because I did. But if I would have got in there and got addicted and maybe even stole some of it, what could have that done later to me in life? I thank God that, he has his, that God has his hand on us, and he protects us. But if we keep going back and looking for opportunities to feed our flesh, we'll find them. When Satan's strategy doesn't work, didn't work on Jesus, uh, he wouldn't change the, the stones to bread. Satan tries again. He, so let's, we're going to hop over to the Luke account of the same thing that was going on where Jesus was tempted. Luke chapter 4, verse 5 through 8. And the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And he said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I will give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone only shall you serve. So what's Satan's second strategy? Satan's going to appeal to the lust of your eyes. He wants to appeal to the lust of your flesh. He also will appeal to the lust of your eyes. What's the difference between the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes? It's a great question. Remember that lust, by definition, is an over-desire. So just as lust of the flesh is an over-desire of our flesh to fulfill its appetites, lust of the eyes is an over-desire to fulfill what our jealous eyes see. It's envy of what we see. It's envious. It's covetedness. Of, it's coveting those things within the world others, that others have. 
And of course, the lust of the eyes can eventually play into the lust of the flesh and vice versa. They overlap, they intermingle, but they are different at the core of what they are. Satan was offering Jesus something that he had been given. He had been given at least some authority in this earth. He's the prince of the power of the air. He is the God of those that refuse Christ within this world. And here the enemy is giving Jesus a bona fide offer. Satan was willing to trade his authority over the world and the world systems if Jesus would just bow down and worship him. Of course, Jesus refuses because it's a ridiculous offer. Jesus was the great creator, right, of all of it anyway. Satan didn't have any authority above that of Jesus, but Satan was trying to appeal to Jesus' eyes. Look at what I've been given. Lust after it, desire it, envy it, worship me, and I will give it to you. And we are tempted in such similar ways. We want what everyone else has. We just aren't satisfied with what we have been given. We always want more. There's always just a little of, bit of that envy or jealousy within us over what someone else has. And we can slip into having an over-desire for it if we don't watch it. That's the lust of the eyes, church. There's a lot of wonderful things in this world that we can have and achieve. And there are houses and cars and businesses and beautiful clothing or the best sporting goods, whether it be golf clubs or hunting gear. How many like nice hunting gear? Yeah, there are many wonderful things. Working hard and gaining in your finances uh, to, to, in order to, to, to uh, have some of those things, making good decisions to the place where you can afford and enjoy some of these things. That's not wrong, okay? That's not wrong. I'm not saying that. But remember, lust is an over-desire. You have to remain balanced and keep your eyes from falling into envious gazing. Envious gazing. We should always be satisfied, yet always desire to achieve. It's not wrong to want to achieve. But it's wrong when we get an over-desire. And the motivations of our heart in achieving are of extreme importance. When the, when's the last time you checked your heart in reference to those dreams and goals you're working so hard to achieve? Are they just the results of your lusting eyes? Always checking your heart in these matters is important. It's so important. We all know Satan's job description, right? John 10.10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's what he does. That's his job description. It's easier for Satan to steal from you if you put all of your desires in things. If things don't matter to you, then the lack of them doesn't really hurt like it would if you did put all your stock in having things, right? I'm not saying we shouldn't have things and even nice things. We just always must make sure that the things don't have us. Jesus didn't bite on this offer either. He didn't fall into the temptation of it all, so Satan tries a third time. Luke 4, 9 through 13. And he took him to Jerusalem and, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Satan will appeal to your pride. That's the strategy. He will appeal 
to your pride. Going on in verse 12, it says, And Jesus answered him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. Jesus was challenged to put his deity on display. In other words, if you are so powerful and if you are who you say you are, then prove it. The devil even quoted Psalm 91 to him as if he needed a reminder, right? Satan does this to us. He doesn't challenge our deity because we aren't divine, but he does try and feed our attitudes about our position, our wealth, our personal achievements, and the honors that we have received. He whispers those things that puff us up until we believe that we are the masters of our own universe. We have arrived at some place of success because of all we've done, right? It's our hard work. It's our superior intellect, our business savvy, our disciplined life. All of it can begin to play into the sin of the pride of life. Look at what I have done as if anyone could achieve anything without God's blessing. Let me remind you of what God told Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? The pride of life will lead to a self-sufficiency that pushes God right out of our lives. When we feel as if we can achieve on our own, we start to become less dependent on him. And I don't care how amazing you are or how gifted you are, you will end up being nothing if your dependency is not on Christ. And this plays out in so many different ways. Where, God, is the pride of life in me? Where do we see it in ourselves? Do we really think that we have because we're so amazing? Or are we just blessed? I was trying to think, God, show me a time when, when maybe I overcame the pride of life or I had an opportunity to fall to it. And I remember this time. How many know that when you're a young man, you, you, uh, you, uh, you want to fight everybody? Prove yourself? How many have ever done that? Some of you are really nice. You just want to beat everybody up because you want to prove that you're a real man, right? And before I was saved, I used to get in some fights. I used to actually go looking for them sometimes. It was It was fun. There was a rush in getting hit in the face. I don't, and it was a bigger rush hitting somebody else. You know what I'm talking about? So you're like, no, I don't know what you're talking about. You're a, you were, you were a bad guy. I was probably a bad guy. But I wasn't really tough or I wasn't really strong or I didn't have some superior skills of fighting. I was just mean. I was just mean. You know, you know there's those people that will put their head down and they'll plow through whatever's in front of them. That, that could have been me back then. One of the things that happened to me was I uh, met this lady named Alyssa. And uh, she was awesome. And she had broken up with her boyfriend, and we had started to become friends. And that relationship was over with this boyfriend, and he was not a good boyfriend either. He wasn't, he wasn't good news. He wasn't, wasn't good. It was bad news. And I remember uh, uh, we were up in the evening one time, and I was at her at her place, and, and uh, she was kind of spoiled as a child, so she had her own phone line in her room, okay? And before you say anything, I mean, every kid has a phone in their pocket now, so. But back then, if you had a phone, your own separate phone line in your room, you were something, so. 
Um, she had her phone line, and this, this boyfriend calls, and we're watching a movie. Uh, she also had a living room attached to her bedroom, which is kind of odd, too. I mean, that you were spoiled. Holy cow. <laughs> we were sitting on the couch in her living room and, and watching a movie or something, and the phone rang, and it was we saw on caller ID. You had caller ID? Holy cow, you were back then? We saw it was him, and I answered the phone. I said, hello? Because she actually had some fear in regards to him. He'd said some things. He had tried being a little rough, even. And, she, and I answered the phone because I knew she was a little fearful, and I said, hello? And he said, I want to talk to Alyssa. And I said, no, that's not going to happen. And then he went into, come on, I want to fight you. I'll fight you right now. I'll fight you right now. Let's go, let's go. I, I, I really don't want to sound arrogant, but I could have really hurt him. I knew I was meaner. He was a city boy. I was a farm kid. There was, just, there was no contest here. Just saying. Not, not that I was invincible, but, I mean, there was just no contest. Plus, if it had anything to do with Alyssa, with Alyssa, I was going to win no matter what, okay? <laughs> and so the pride started welling up. And this is just a little thing. This is just a little thing I thought of. Pride started welling up like, okay, let's go, let's go. Yeah, let's do this. And I stopped because I was like, you know what? That was the old me. Who do, who, what do I have to prove? I could have pummeled the guy. What do I have to prove? So I said, nah. I already got what I want, and I hung up the phone. <laughs> of course, it was her. But do you see where pride of life, where I'm the man, I'm going to do this, I'm going to conquer, I can do it in business, I can do it with finances, I can do it with my intellect, I can do it with my hard work, I can do it with this, 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 this. It's me. However you want to look at it. And women do it too. And we become so dependent on self, we stop becoming dependent on God. That's pride of life. And it shows itself even in those little moments. I think almost all of Satan's strategies with Jesus here, trying to appeal to his, the lust of the flesh, trying to appeal to, the, appeal to the lust of the eyes and to the pride of life, I think any strategy can be placed in one of these categories, right? And these are strategies of how he gets God's people bound up in sin and renders them powerless in the fight. He attacks us in lots of ways, lots of different lies, sometimes sickness, sometimes other people, sometimes situations, circumstances, all these other things. You could just go on and on and on about all the different kinds of attacks. But if his strategy is over here to get you bound up, then when the attack comes, you are powerless and he wipes you out. We get trapped and caught up in our own sin. We don't even have the power to fight when those attacks come. You see, if you're physically bound by the lust of flesh, the lust of the flesh, you're not going to be able... Uh, to be in a position to fight any kind of spiritual battle. 
If your eyes are focused on the things that you gotta have, those things that you are envious of others having, then you're, you're not focused on the spiritual battle before you. If you're so full of, of the pride of life, so self-sufficient in your own abilities that you don't really need God's help, your battle's lost before it starts. I love what 1 John 2, 15 through 16 says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Here God gives us the categories, doesn't he? They're not of the Father, but they're of the world. And church, when the Bible is talking about the world, don't forget who this world is being influenced by. The enemy, if he can get you bound up in these things, then he can attack and we don't even know the attack is happening sometimes because we're so focused and we're so bogged down in the sin, in the issue, in the problem, whatever it might be. I think this is an interesting thing. You guys know who Paul Harvey is? Paul Harvey in 1965, and I think I've read this before in church, but he broadcasted a short personal dissertation entitled, If I Were the Devil. And it's amazing to think that even though he wrote this 54 years ago, how accurately he prophesied, really, the future uh, spiritual condition of our nation. In 1965, most of his statements in this piece that I'm about to read to you were considered ridiculous and outlandish. What do you think? If I were the devil, he said. If I were the prince of darkness, I want, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness. I'd have a third of its real estate and a four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I'd seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old would teach, in the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whomever I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families with, uh, that war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed and with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects but neglect to discipline emotions. Just let emotions run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have a drug-sniffing dog and metal detector at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict, uh, uh, evict churches, and I would, uh, I would substitute psychology for religion. And 
deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbols of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give it to those who want until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious. And what do you bet? I could get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work and patriotism and in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be, and thus I could undress you in public. I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there would be no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what I'm doing or what he's doing. We just went over the greatest example in Scripture of what we should do when Satan tries and tempts us in all these areas. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life. And when Satan tried to tempt Jesus with the lust of the flesh, what did Jesus do? He quoted the word. When Satan tried to tempt Jesus with the lust of the eyes, Jesus quoted scriptures. And when the devil tried to get Jesus to become puffed up and prideful, Jesus quoted the word. So what should we do when the devil begins to lay his same traps for us? We need to become people of the word and quote the word like the Son of God did. You know, that thing from Paul Harvey is amazing because it just lays out so many things that are just, they're totally happening 54 years later. And like I said, back then, some of those things, were, that would have been laughable. The enemy works slowly much of the time, laying those little traps, little by little by little by little by little by little by little, until he has you so bound, you didn't even know what was happening. Then the attack comes from the rear, and it wipes you out because you're powerless. That's how he strategizes. That's what he does. But folks, to be forewarned is to be forearmed. We need to resist against the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We need to be in the word of God and get the word of God so far down in our heart that when the devil does try to tempt us in those areas, we can quote the word back and defeat him just like Jesus did in those moments. We know his end. We know what's gonna happen. We know his future. But don't let him try to take you out in the process. The victory is won, but you got to keep your foot on his throat. Thanks for being a part of the Indianola First Assembly of God podcast. Join us next week to stay updated on our latest message.